Today we're going to be continuing our journey through Luke, and we're going to be looking at chapter 20 today. Again, these are fairly long chapters, uh, but if you would, uh, please uh, read along if you have a Bible and listen carefully as I read a portion of chapter 20 and then uh, we'll go through it. I'm going to be starting at verse 9 of chapter 20. Then he, meaning Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, He sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your scriptures today, we ask that you will give us hearts to... um, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that will obey. We fall upon you, Christ our rock, and ask that you will break us uh, in order to build us back up in your truth and in your word. And we ask this all today in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. In 1627, on February 8th, in a small village that I won't even attempt to pronounce the name. It's in modern-day Slovenia. There was a breakthrough uh, of amazing proportions. Uh, It was the first time gunpowder was used in a way other than for what we normally think gunpowder is used for, namely shooting guns. Uh, It was the first time someone thought to use gunpowder for a peaceful purpose. And essentially what they did was they used gunpowder to break open a a giant rock to create a mine. And this created what's known as the Bieber Tunnel. And at the time it was called the mother of all mines uh, because it was the richest mine in Europe. And pretty quickly that innovation took hold. People thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. We should start using gunpowder to... um, mine even further, even deeper, and ultimately it unleashed the resources that uh, Europe would use, the Western world would use to fuel our modern age of industry. And uh, all because someone thought to 
use gunpowder in this way. And in fact, uh, things such as the tunnels in the Blue Ridge Parkway still were, were created using this technique. Tunnels going through uh, mountains in the, the Swiss Alps. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty useful technique. And it's not uncommon for us to hear stones, rocks being used as illustrations and metaphors because it is so hard. I mean, you literally have to break it apart to be able to work with it. Uh, sand and dirt, you know, with a little bit of time and effort, you can scoop it up and, and move it away. But stone's different. You have to actually destroy it. <clears throat> you have to break it into pieces to make it more manageable. And so when we come to today's text, it's maybe not surprising that we have this image of Christ uh, being the stone. And in fact, as he's even saying this, we have to remember where he's, he's saying all this. This is actually at the temple, which of course was a, a, a marvel of the day, uh, this big giant stone temple. Uh, they would have been thinking of this. In fact, let's Let's go back a little bit and remember or look at the context in which Jesus is having this confrontation with the leaders. Uh, we heard last week how Jesus had come into Jerusalem triumphant, and he then went into the temple and he began to drive out those who were there, uh, what we know as the cleansing of the temple. And it didn't stop there. Jesus boldly, after creating this, uh, this stir, this uh, very public, controversial act, he went right on teaching, uh, day after day, it says, in the temple. And what he was doing, of course, was starting to rebuild. So his cleansing of the temple, he was pronouncing judgment on the temple. He was pronouncing judgment, saying, this time is coming to an end. And in fact, next Next week, we'll, we'll hear about that as we go into Luke 21, how the days were limited. Uh, there would be a time not too far off from this point where the Romans would come in, destroy the temple, and he says that not a single stone will be left on top of each other. <clears throat> so here, Jesus is, is uh, proclaiming the destruction of the temple, and he starts rebuilding, not with physical stones, but teaching the people. And so here the leaders start to uh, plot to destroy him. And this is all paving the way uh, within uh, a few days of this time to bring Jesus to arrest him, bring him to trial, and ultimately execute him. So as we enter into chapter 20, the authorities, the, the so-called authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, they're, they're getting more bold in their confrontation of Jesus. They, they know that they have to do something uh, to act uh, because to them, you know, Jesus is now out of control and the crowds are just getting bigger and bigger. They've got to do something. They've got to put a stop to him. So we see here that they, they confront him. And in verse 2, they, they speak to Jesus and they say, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it who gave you this authority? In a way, they're saying, okay, we, we asked around. None of us gave you permission. You know, we checked. Uh, who, who told you that you could do this? Who told you you could come in here and, and say this? 
And Jesus' answer is an interesting one because he doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he comes back to them and says, okay, you ask me a question, I'll be the one asking questions here. Let me ask you just one thing. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And it's, it's very telling. I mean, we could look and see, okay, this is being clever on Jesus' part. You know, he's sort of turning it back on them, a little bit of uh, parrying, uh, verbal parrying here. And he's being very Socratic, asking questions, answering a question with a question. But in a way, it's not even that Jesus was playing a trick or, or doing some sort of fancy uh, rhetorical uh, device here. Jesus was actually acting out the reality of the situation. Here they had God in the flesh standing before them, and they dared to question him. I'm, I'm reminded of Job, chapter 38, when Job had spent the entire book going back and forth with his, uh, his so-called friends, and, and the whole time Job is bringing uh, questions before God and accusations, and finally uh, the Lord shows up in a whirlwind, and he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's showing them. Uh, he's not trying to be shifty or tricky or anything like that. He's asking them a question to reveal the reality of the situation to them. He's saying, I'm the one that's going to ask the questions here. If anyone needs to question who's in charge, who's the authority, it's you, not me, Jesus is saying. And their response is very telling. Notice here in verse 5, it says they reasoned among themselves. They reasoned among themselves. Did they break out their Bibles, take a look at it? Did they stop and pray for wisdom? Did they ask Jesus what he thought? No. Instead, they stayed right there in their little echo chamber, relying on, on their own wisdom, talking back and forth, reasoning among themselves to try and come up with something. And what's interesting, not only were they relying on their limited understanding, notice where that took them. They said, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? So clearly they're motivated not by necessarily the truth, but by the appearances. They, wanted, they didn't want to get into a situation where they were going to have to justify their decisions. They didn't want to get into a situation where they were going to be questioned for the actions that they were taking. So that option didn't sound very good to them. So they say, but if we say from men, if we say that uh, John's authority came from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So on the one hand, in their very limited understanding as they were reasoning together, they had this intense desire to justify their actions, but on the other hand, they also had a fear of the people. They didn't want to do anything that might upset them or, again, make themselves look bad in front of the people or, or maybe even have the people revolt against them. They wanted to maintain that control. So here you have a group of people that just with one question, Jesus was able to demonstrate that they're arrogant, they're self-justifying, they're cowardly. That doesn't really sound like someone qualified to be the legitimate authority over God's people. 
And they even admit this in verse 7. It says, they answered that they did not know where it came from. They, they concede Jesus' point. They're saying, okay, we, we don't really know. We're not qualified here. And what's interesting is in this chapter, and I'm only going to briefly talk about uh, two other confrontations that occur in this chapter, but you have a similar dynamic going on. Uh, so I'm going to skip for a moment over the, the passage I just read because I want to spend the majority of our time on that. But I'm going to skip ahead to verse 20. And here we have you know, a fairly famous uh, interaction that Jesus has. Um, they, they watch him. They sent some spies to pretend to be righteous, it says in verse 20, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power of the, and the authority of the government. In other words, the direct confrontation didn't go so well, so now they're going to send spies and, and wait to see an opportunity if they can somehow trip Jesus up in his words. And so one of them says to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you say what you say and you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism. They're kind of trying to, to flatter him a little bit, sort of butter him up maybe. Uh, he, they say, but, we, but, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus doesn't, uh, he's not fooled by this at all, of course. In verse 23, it says, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? And, of course, we, we know his response is, show me a denarius, show me the coin. And he says, you know, render to Caesar the things of, that are Caesar and to God, the things that are God. There, there's so much we could go into about that and the implications for our relationship with the world, with the state and such. But what mostly I want us to, to look at here is, once again, Jesus is, is the one calling the shots here. It's not them. It's not Caesar. It's, it's Jesus himself. He's the one in charge. And it says they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. They tried to, to question. They first tried to question his legitimacy, his authority. They couldn't get that, get him on that. So now they're trying to question his loyalty, see if they can question his loyalty. And, and it, you're almost reminded of the time right before the people of Israel went, were, were going into uh, conquer Jericho. Uh, under Joshua's leadership, and he sees the, the leader of God's army, and he says, whose side are you for, theirs or ours? And his response is, uh, neither. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of God's army. But he flipped it around. Joshua, whose side are you on? And it's the same thing here. Whose side are you on, uh, Jesus? And he's saying, if you really knew who I was, you'd flip that around. You'd be asking yourself that. Are you loyal to Caesar or are you loyal to me? So that didn't work so well. Then we have another confrontation. This time it's the Sadducees uh, who were associated with the temple. And we don't hear much about them uh, in the Gospels, but they do make an appearance here. And uh, one of the distinctive uh, notes about them that, that Luke makes is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. So if the first two confrontations, they were trying to question Jesus' legitimacy, um, and in the second one, they're, they're questioning Jesus' loyalty, in this third one, they want to get into a theological debate. And it's, it's interesting that, in one sense, um, it almost seems a uh, departure or a tangent, that here 
uh, at least the, the chief priests and the, uh, and the scribes and, and the elders are at least getting to some weighty questions about authority and who's in charge and such. Here, the Sadducees, they, they want us to uh, debate Jesus on a very fine technical point around the resurrection. And this is where they bring up this, uh, this hypothetical situation where you have someone who is married and then he dies and that wife, is, uh, he, he has seven brothers and they end up marrying her over and over again and they ask this question about um, who, you know, what is, if, if there really is a resurrection, how's this all going to work out? We're trying to sort this all out in our mind. And, you know, Jesus does actually answer them, but he uses scripture. He says, well, you're asking this question, and it's almost as if he says, you know, well, look, uh, even Moses showed, I'm, I'm looking at verse 37, even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, well, you got, got the Bible. Yeah. Um, just he, he's, uh, and, and the response that the, the scribes give in verse 39, they answer, teacher, you've spoken well. But it says in verse 40, after that, they dared not question him any, anymore. Uh, they were done with the questions. But what's interesting is we see even then, Jesus wasn't done. They might have been done. They, they might have finally said, okay, fine, fine. We're, we, we, we give up. We're, we're trying to, to ask you these. Uh, we're trying to trip you up, Jesus. We can't do it. And Jesus, once again, gives them a question. He says in verse 41, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So he's asking him these questions. And all of these questions come back to uh, pointing them at him, saying, okay, if you really want to know these questions and you're interested in more than just getting Jesus, um, trying to trip him up, trying to get him in trouble, then you really should be asking yourself, what's my relationship here? What am, what's my understanding? What, where's my loyalty? What do I understand the scriptures say about who Jesus is? So, in all of these, he, he's really answering the question, the first question that was raised in this passage, and that is, who ultimately is in charge here? Who, who's the one in control? And what's interesting, going back to verse 38, or I'm sorry, verse 8, uh, after that first question they asked about John the Baptist and under whose authority Jesus is, is doing all these things, Jesus tells the leaders, at least, he says, I will, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, if you can't answer me this, this simple question, I'm not going to answer you. And even though he says he's not going to answer or tell them, in verse 9, he actually does answer their question, but he goes past the leaders and he goes directly to the people. It says in verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. Now, this is the, the parable that I, I read uh, at the beginning, the one of the vineyard. And there's a few things to note as we go through the parable. Uh, Jesus points out that a man planted a vineyard and then he leased it to the vine dressers. And that's a, a key point to remember here, this, this word lease. 
the vine dressers didn't own the vineyard. Right? They were given it for a time and for a specific purpose. And the, as he goes on through, the, there's certain expectations that come along with it. It's not that these were uh, just squatting on the land or, or were given the land for their own purposes. There's an expectation, even though the owner of the vineyard had been gone for a long time, there was an expectation that at the right time, he was going to send servants and expect a harvest. He was going to expect something in exchange for their being there uh, on the land, in the vineyard. But we, we see that their response is uh, to take each of these servants and mistreat them and send them back empty-handed, basically saying, no, they're, they're acting as if this is their vineyard, right? If somebody came in, if this truly was their property and somebody came in to try and take uh, the, the fruit of, of the vineyard, they could have perhaps been justified in, in fighting them off because this person would be trespassing, they'd be stealing. But in this case, they were acting as if they owned that vineyard when in fact they didn't. So after these multiple attempts to bring in this harvest, to, to bring in his share of the vineyard, the fruit of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard says, okay, the only uh, option I have left is to send my son and hope that they will listen and respond to him in a different way. And then in verse 14, when the son does arrive, notice what Jesus says. When the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves. Hmm, where have we heard that phrase before? Oh yeah, we just heard that, right? That's exactly what the leaders were doing. They were reasoning among themselves. And it's, it's very clear that, uh, and we'll see in a moment, their reaction shows that they knew that Jesus was talking directly to them about them. He sa they say, this is the heir. Come let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Now, I'm not an expert in inheritance law or property law or anything like that. And there may have been a culture out there that says if something doesn't belong to you and you kill that person, then you get to keep it. But even that just sounds ridiculous. Their plan is completely, it, for all their reasoning among themselves, it's completely unreasonable. Just because they killed the son doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to inherit the vineyard. And in fact, that's not what turns out. Uh, they, do, they do cast him out of the vineyard and kill him. And the owner ultimately comes and destroys them and he takes the vineyard and gives it to somebody else. Now, one thing to, to note, this is not your average parable, even, even for Jesus. And I, I say in all respect, obviously, any parable Jesus said was above average, I mean, obviously, but, but this is not, maybe typical is a better word to use. This is not your typical parable, like so many that we've heard uh, throughout uh, the Gospels, where Jesus is, is giving maybe a moral point or, or something for us to take away in terms of our understanding of his kingdom. There, there's more in this parable going on, and their reaction shows this. This is more akin to the parable that Nathan told David 
um, if you'll remember, after he uh, sinned with Bathsheba and he tells the story of the, the poor man with the one sheep and, and all that, that, that was a parable that I suppose we could take away and, and apply just generically. But it was given for a very specific purpose to basically show David the, the egregiousness of his sin and to bring David to repentance. And this is a very similar thing going on, that Jesus is directing this parable exactly at them. And they would have known this. They would have known what he was talking about. Because this notion of the vineyard uh, is, is a common, uh, common image. And probably the clearest example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 5. And I'm, I'm going to read the first seven verses of that. Uh, in that, Isaiah, who, remember, is one of these servants that God sent to the vine dressers to tell them to, to bring in this harvest. He says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. And just so that we're, we're all tracking here on the, of what the relationship is, the one building the vineyard is God himself. Okay? And he's building this on behalf of his people, Israel. Um, so Isaiah says, He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good, good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me what I will do to my vineyard. And in case we're not still sure exactly who he's referring to, in verse 7, Isaiah goes on to say, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plan. So there's, there's no ambiguity here. Uh, this isn't, well, maybe the vineyard sort of... Uh, in Isaiah and, and other places too, uh, Psalm 80, for instance, is another place where, where this shows up. Uh, Israel is, is specifically called God's vineyard. And the, the image is exactly that, that God came in gave them a land, the, the promised land. He cleared away everything so that it would become, the, the nation of Israel there in the promised land would become an Eden on earth for all to see, that they would see this glorious vineyard and all this, this fruit coming out of that so that all the nations would see and know that this is the Lord's, um, this is the Lord's. So he, he gave them a place, this land flowing with milk and honey, he also put in protection for them, not just physically, but even more importantly, he gave them the law. It was only to the nation of Israel that the law was entrusted. The law applies to everybody, but the nation of Israel were the ones who were entrusted with the law. He also gave them a purpose. They were to, to bear, be uh, priests, the priests of God here on earth, and to bring the light to the Gentiles. So every single Jew... At this time, when Jesus was telling this parable, as soon as he say, said vineyard, they would have known, oh, he's talking about Israel. As soon as he talks about the owner uh, of the vineyard, the one who planted the vineyard, they would have known he was talking about God. 
So it's also very clear that the vine dressers, the one who had been entrusted, who had been leased this vineyard, were the leaders of Israel. And so when we come down to, to the last verse of this, that this, this declaration that the owner, namely God, is going to come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. This wasn't just a hypothetical situation. This wasn't just something that was going to happen in some far-off distant future. Jesus was telling them, God is going to come. He's going to destroy you, and he is going to take this, uh, this nation, the, his, his status as God's people, and he's going to take it away from the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will no longer have the benefit of that special claim of being God's chosen people. He's going to give it to the Gentiles. And their reaction shows they knew exactly what he was talking about. Because that when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And what's interesting is it says that Jesus looked directly at them. Luke's the only one of, of the three places where this shows up in, in the three Gospels. Luke's the only one that says that they looked directly uh, at them. Um, and in, in case we have any doubt whatsoever, in Matthew's account of this, this same interaction, Matthew 21, 43, he records that Jesus followed up this parable by saying, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus is being very, very clear. Uh, and in fact, we know from history that this came to pass. I mean, it's, it's ironic and tragic that the nation, the one nation that at this particular moment the Jews hated more than anybody else was the Romans. They hated the Romans. We even see that. They were trying to trip Jesus up by getting him to, to claim loyalty to Caesar. They hated the Romans. And yet, not too far off in the distant future, the Romans were, are going to come in. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to uh, take that all apart. And within a generation after that, there won't be a single Jew left in all of Palestine until within, you know, uh, until, you know the 1940s. Right? For almost 2,000 years after that, there won't be Jews allowed in that part of the world. And the nation that God is going to do this is, is with the Romans. But we also know that it doesn't stop there. It's not just that he was taking the Israelites out of the promised land. But even more significant, it, it's over. It's done. The Jews were no longer going to have that, that designation as being God's special chosen people. Ethnic Jews, at least, wouldn't be uh, able to, to call that. Now, obviously, ethnic Jews uh, do become Christians. They can become Christians. Um, and we hope and pray that they, they will, um, all that we know. But no longer could they as a nation, as a, as a special people group, have that special claim. Instead, this was going to be given to all and taken away from them. And again, it would be done ultimately through the, the structure of the Roman Empire. So once again, it's this, this bloodthirsty, ruthless, pagan nation that God ultimately transforms into 
uh, his, his foundation for spreading the gospel uh, ultimately to the entire world. So no wonder they reacted strongly. Uh, they, you know, and, and they, at this point, they, they really have nothing much else to say other than certainly not, and they, they seek to, to um, lay hands on Jesus, it says, that very hour. They're, they're being uh, strong, their reaction strong. But here we then see Jesus' answer to them, well, you say certainly not, but it's really not for you to decide. Because ultimately, Christ says, I'm the stone that even though you're rejecting it, I'm going to become the chief cornerstone. And here, uh, Jesus is quoting a verse that originally appears in, in Psalm 118, and um, in which God has promised that it will, uh, most likely, this Psalm 118 is, is a psalm either commemorating when the temple was rebuilt uh, during the time of Ezra, or it was the actual psalm that they sang when they were rebuilding it. And, and so, as you picture, they've come back, the people have come back, and they're finally given the opportunity to rebuild the temple, this scene in Ezra 3. And it says that they laid the foundation and the people start rejoicing um, because this, this foundation has been set. And even though it had been rejected, they had gone through the exile and, and all that into Babylon. Finally, that stone that had been rejected was, was being laid again as a chief cornerstone. And, and Christ is saying now, here, as he's standing in the temple, he's saying, I am the chief cornerstone. This temple is going away. And the only thing that's going to be left is me. And off of me, my teaching, um, my sacrifice, I'm the foundational rock that this is going to be built on. And this, of course, is not the only time Jesus refers to himself as that foundational rock. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he, he ends that entire sermon by giving the, the parable of the, man, the two men, one building their house on the sand, one building a house on the rock. And he, you know, any, the, the house that was built on the sand is destroyed. The house that's built on the rock stands. And the response that the people who hear him say this give is they're amazed. Um, Matthew tells us they're amazed because Jesus was speaking with authority. They, and, and unlike the authority of the scribes, they knew what Jesus was saying, that he was essentially saying, I am God. My words um, have the same power as, as God himself. And it's on him that, uh, that our foundation rests. And this is seen throughout the New Testament. This verse actually is used quite a bit. Peter references it in his uh, speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. He, he repeats this, this verse about Jesus being the stone which the builders rejected. Uh, he also later uses it in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, uh, talking about how the church is built on the chief cornerstone of Christ. And Paul makes this exact same point in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, all of these go back to the same notion that Christ is the foundation on which everything's built. And it's not the, the, the ethnic identity of, of the Jews. Um, it's not even really the law that was entrusted to the Jews. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He's the unshakable foundation. And this is something that 
we're used to, to thinking about, about uh, Jesus being the rock, we sing about it and such, about Jesus being the foundation, but even more critical and more important to this particular text is notice that Jesus takes this idea of the rock being a foundation that we build on, and he, he also takes it in a, a different notion in verse 18. He says, for whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls will uh, grind into power. You know, rocks have been around for a very long time, uh, and, and stone is something that shows up again and again. Um, going back to our earliest history, we've primarily used stone because it's so hard and, and useful. We use it for two different things. We use it to build things. I mean, the Egyptian pyramids, the, the oldest one is still standing after 5,000 years. That's, that's a, a long time. But not only do we build things with, with stone and rock, we also use it to destroy things. And so you know, weapons, whether it's making a stone club or, or uh, arrowheads and, and such, are used uh, for, for killing as well because it's useful for that. And in fact, we know again and again there are instances where stones are used to um, destroy God's enemies. Joshua, there was that um, battle in, in Joshua 10 where God's hailstones killed more people than the uh, Israelite soldiers did. Um, we heard not too long ago of the story of, of David and Goliath. And what did David use to, to kill Goliath with? A rock. Uh, we also have the story of Abimelech, who was one of the sons of Gideon. He tried to become the king over Israel and even killed his 70 brothers. Uh, it says, interestingly enough, it says he, he tried to kill, or he, had, he killed his brothers on one stone. And so the way God judged him, you'll remember, is he was attacking a tower, and he was close to the tower trying to set it on fire, and it says some woman, it doesn't even give her name, some woman tosses a millstone out and crushes his skull and is defeated. And so all these examples of antichrists, if you will, uh, those who sought to rule over God's people, God ultimately destroyed them with rocks. And this is illustrating the same truth here, that there's only one rock that will ever have legitimate authority over God's people, and that's Christ himself. He's unmovable. He's so powerful and unshakable that only one of two things can happen when you encounter him. You'll either break upon him in repentance, or you will be ground to dust. This is what Jesus is saying here, that they... They really, when it comes down to it, only have two choices. They can either uh, bow down and surrender to him and ultimately be saved, or they'll be ground to, to powder, Jesus says. They'll be completely obliterated. And we see, ultimately, the fulfillment of this. They, they don't. They go through with their plan. In fact, right after Jesus says this, they seek that very hour to, they're, they're so angry and, and uh, have such hatred for him, they, they're ready to kill him right there on the spot. But again, their fate is, is sealed at that point. They are going to be destroyed utterly. So with uh, the time I have remaining, I just have a couple of closing thoughts I want to bring up uh, around this. First of all, 
if, yeah, we all have questions at times, we all have doubts, and I certainly don't think that this is saying that we should never come to Jesus, uh, or come to God with questions. Um, I think, you know, certainly that is legitimate. And we know that there are plenty of people that Jesus encounters that ask questions, and he was more than willing to lovingly answer those questions. This is more a question of why uh, we, we ask the questions that we do. And in this case, they were being confrontational. And the fact of the matter is, if you're going to go up against the only immovable object in the universe, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. There, there, it's a no-win situation. You can keep banging yourself and, and beating yourself over and over, um, but ultimately, that, that's folly. It's going to end in your destruction. What, uh, the only alternative to that is to either go the way of destruction or allow yourself to be broken apart by Christ and built back up. Uh, and we do that uh, every time we come to him in repentance, every time we acknowledge uh, our brokenness before him, he very lovingly, uh, solidly uh, builds us back up. So hopefully, there, hopefully you never get into a place where you're thinking that you can somehow go up against God and you're going to win because you're not. You're going to lose. The other point I wanted to bring up, too, is remember that God had entrusted these, uh, these leaders, he had entrusted them with very uh, significant sacred things, uh, the land, the law, the gospel even. And it was his to take away. And the same is true for us as, as the church today. We have been entrusted with this vineyard. We have been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the privilege of being able to uh, have God's dominion uh, illustrated and, and made known to the world. But he can just as easily take that away. Last week we heard about the, the, or heard the call that we shouldn't take what God has entrusted to us and put it in a handkerchief and put it in our pocket. It was a call to be industrious, to, to work, to do the business of God uh, until he comes back. And, and in addition to that, in addition to being industrious, we also need to be humble and recognize that he's not given us the church. He's not given us our families uh, because we're so good at it and, and we're just the right people for the job. If anything, we're probably the worst people for the job. And yet God, through his mercy, through his uh, grace, works through us and gives us the privilege of being able to, to use what he's given us for his glory. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're entitled to that, that God has entrusted our, uh, our church, our jobs, our families, our friends, all of these things that God has blessed us with. It's ultimately so we can take that and, and bear that fruit and that harvest. And let's do so with humble hearts, acknowledging uh, the mercy that he's given to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come before you acknowledging you, that you are our rock, you are our redeemer, and it's upon you that we today ask that you will break us, uh, break apart from us those things that would um, 
drag us down, that, that would drag us away from you and instead build us up. Lord, we also pray that you will enable us to be faithful with what you've entrusted to us. Let us never take that for granted, but rather, Lord, help us to be faithful in, faithful stewards in administering those things that you've placed within our, our grasp. And we ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.